Hello, and welcome to Ruminations of a Six-Button Samurai. My name is JJJ, and I want to talk about my own journey through retro gaming. Um, I think it's safe to say that in the year 2020, retro gaming in terms of arcade and the consoles of yesteryear, it's bigger than ever. I mean, there's more retro products you can get now. You can get, you know replica consoles that are based on FPGA technology. You can get these mock joysticks that have like 400 games bundled in a Raspberry Pi. There's all this stuff and that's fantastic, but I think too often we sort of treat it as this very kind of shallow, retro, nostalgic enterprise. And we don't really take a hard look at it in terms of what did you play at what age and who were the people you played it with and what kind of impact did it have on your development or your cultural outlook? Um, so that's basically the goal of this podcast is to dissect my own experiences with this medium and sort of try to reveal the things that have made me who I am today in the same way that, you know, if you look at tree rings in an ancient tree, you can sort of tell what the environment was like at the time, what the weather was, what species were dominant, this, that, and the other. So I think that's an interesting way to sort of look at this, a less explored way to look at it. So I'm just going to dive right in with some of my own ruminations of a person that Grew up as kind of an arcade rat, also had some consoles in the house, and then when the Street Fighter II craze hit, that just became an absolute obsession for me. But let's take ourselves all the way back. And to be honest, I don't even know the exact year that this took place. The only thing I know for sure is that, you know, my father left our household when I was but a year old. And quite a ways after that, around the age of five or six, um, the movie Alien was going to appear on HBO. It was like the premiere of it. And I had an aunt and an uncle. Um, the aunt was by blood. She's my mom's sister. The man she was married to, my uncle Paul, he was a huge sci-fi fantasy guy. And he had invited my mom and I to go over to their house to watch this movie. Now, the thing was, I didn't know what Alien was. I was just going, oh, that sounds really cool. Like, I, you know, I knew of Star Wars. Like, I was kind of plugged into that, but I didn't know what Alien was. Thing was, we'd been there for a little while, and my uncle began to describe this movie to my mom. And my mom was just like, there's no way in hell I'm going to let him watch that. He's way too young for that. He's going to have nightmares or whatnot. And so I was a little bummed out. I was like, oh, come on, I can handle it. You know, like a typical five or six year old. But what wound up happening instead 
is that my uncle said, look, no problem. You know, I don't want to give little Jimmy some nightmares. Let's not do that. So he ushers me to his little painting studio. He had this separate room. It was like your total fresh from the 70s walnut paneled room. But it was just piled high. Like he was already like an early adopter of VHS. So he had stacks and stacks of like movies he'd tape straight from HBO or TV shows, this, that, and the other. He also had a bunch of his paintings all throughout the room, which were like a mix of strange fantasy and sci-fi scenes, you know? Um, But the thing he had in that room was he had a television with an Atari 2600 hooked up. Now, I had never played a video game before to this point. I hadn't been exposed to them. I hadn't been taken to an arcade yet. And so he sort of showed me the machine. He showed me how it worked. He had about 15 or 20 cartridges at the time. And he's like, you know what? Just just give it a try. So he leaves. I proceed to try a couple of games. The first one that I began to take a shine to was Atari Pinball. And that's because I was familiar with the concept of pinball. You know, I'd seen them in a couple of places, but, um, you know, this is my first time kind of playing anything. And the thing was, right off the bat, I began to feel kind of good about how it felt. Like, the physics, the sort of weird, crunchy, synthesized twang of the ball, um, you know, it felt good. It felt like a thing that I could sort of get progressively better at, and that's what happened. But maybe an hour, an hour and a half passed, and I got kind of bored with that. And it was after this that I discovered my first true love in the world of gaming, and that was the Atari 2600 version of Space Invaders. Now, I can't even tell you what proceeded to happen next because it's just this blur of getting a little bit better score, getting a little bit better score, getting even further, the enemy's coming faster, time just beginning to blur. Um, I was, I just got lost in this complete haze. It was like getting sucked into a vortex. Like I was completely engulfed in this thing and everything else around me The walnut paneling, the crazy paintings, everything else in my uncle's room ceased to matter except the screen in front of me and the one-button joystick in my hand. Now, at a certain point, I died and had, like, racked up a pretty impressive score. And I had this urge to get up because I'd been sitting Indian-style on the carpet for a really long time. And it was at this point where I just sort of realized that there was no sound coming from the entire rest of the house. I wandered out of his room and down the hallway, and everyone else was asleep. My mom had gone to sleep on the couch. And crazier yet, there was just a little bit of dawn light coming in through the room. Now, at the age of five or six, the first time you conquered the night, the first time you managed to realize that you've stayed up essentially the whole night, 
it's kind of a mind-blowing thing to experience. It's like, wow, like, I just skipped sleep. Like, sleep was just optional. I didn't have to do that. Fuck that. Like, I did what I wanted, and it was great. So I went and got a glass of water, had to pee, went back to the room, played one more game of Space Invaders, and then I just flattened. And all I can remember is it seemed like just minutes later that my mom came to wake me up and was like, come on, we're, we're going home. We're going to go home and get some breakfast. And I was just like, oh, like it was the worst wake-up call in the history of the world because I'd stayed up all night and had gotten maybe an hour or two of sleep before my mom had jostled me awake. So, yeah, that was my first contact, if you will, with the medium. Now, after that, there had been a couple of other trips to some pretty big arcades. I came from a pretty large family in that my mom was one of seven. She had three brothers, and they were all kind of in their early to mid-20s at that point. And they were also like, you know, they were into this stuff. So there were many times where I would go with them to different arcades. Um, Shortly after that was uh, when I experienced the original Atari Star Wars arcade vector game, which blew my mind as, you know, a little dyed-in-the-wool, you know, old-school Star Wars rat. Like, that was another sort of mind-blowing experience. Um, and so that sort of formed, like, the really early basis for um, my formative years with the medium. The next thing that would sort of become a profound thing, um, my mother remarried. And it wasn't very long after that that this person she married re-enlisted in the Navy. And we were going to leave Tucson for San Diego. And that was really kind of a scary thing for me because I had so become accustomed to having kind of this big, noisy, extended family that was around the house all the time. Um, so there were some seeds of rebellion that began to be planted not long after we left for San Diego. I had a very short walk to my elementary school. And along this path, there was a fairly large strip mall. And in that strip mall, there was not only a thrifty drugstore, which had amazing cheap ice cream and a selection of Atari 2600 games on the shelf. But there was also another arcade in that strip mall. And eventually that strip mall arcade would become the first place that I would ever ditch school for. Now, around this time, I became aware of a pattern that I began to develop when I would go to arcades I would usually fixate on a game that I was really, really good at, but then I would also fixate on a game that was one that I found to be really hard and challenging and would just be a completely unfun thing, but I would refuse to sort of give up on it. And in that time, those two games became Donkey Kong and Galaga. Galaga was a natural extension of the joy that I'd found in Space Invaders, only it was faster, it was more colorful, um, but it had this wonderful rhythm 
with the way the shots are fired that I just sort of plugged into and just found hyper addictive. Donkey Kong was on the complete other end of the spectrum, though. It was absolutely punishing, and I was no good at it whatsoever. But it was also so colorful and hypnotic in terms of the sound effects, in terms of the really primitive little bit of score, in terms of trying to tell a story. I mean, in this era, in the early 1980s, storytelling in video games was essentially in the silent film era. You had very minimal, you know, shapes and colors and some really primitive music to go along with it. And so, you know, Donkey Kong, in terms of like trying to build this little world and set up a story, was almost like the Citizen Kane of arcade games at that moment, which sounds a little bit hyperbolic. But if you just look at like Shigeru Miyamoto as an artist, like, trying to do something with a medium that it really wasn't prepared to do yet. I don't think that comparison is actually that far off. But at any rate, Galaga and Donkey Kong had become my joints. And they had so become my joints that there were a couple of times where I decided to skip school. The first time I did it, it was one of those things where I'd managed to sort of save up a, you know, a few weeks worth of allowance. So I had a few bucks on me and I just figured if I played Galaga real slow, like, and managed to just watch other people playing games as well, like, I could burn up all the time I had that way. I could be strategic about it. Um, the second time was the time that I got caught. And, you know, uh, I got a very, very stern talking to, um, you know, the new person in my mother's life was not the most pleasant person in the world. And, you know, I was already sort of resentful of the situation, kind of being dragged away from, you know, my grandma and grandpa and all my aunts and uncles that, you know, this was not, this was already not going well. Um, but needless to say, um, that situation actually got worse <laughs> because it wasn't very long after that that my mother's husband got reassigned and we actually moved to Guam. Now, if you're not familiar with where Guam is, Guam is a United States territory that kind of sits way out in the Pacific Ocean, closer to Indonesia, the Philippines, and Japan than it is to Hawaii. It's way out there. So, for me, essentially, this is like moving to another planet. Like, I didn't know what to expect. I wasn't really told much what to expect. You know, the only thing, the only sort of daylight at all, not very long after we moved there, there was one day where we went to this sort of recreation center. And I don't even remember exactly what it was. It might have been like a boys club sort of thing. I was eight years old by this point. And the things that they did have that I was excited about was that they had a time pilot machine and a Zaxxon machine. Now, if you've never played time pilot, it's a really old Konami shooter. And 
it just has this sort of wonderful freeform movement that you don't find in a lot of games of that era. And it also had this really spectacular variety between stages. I mean, you were used to like a very minimalist set of bug-like enemies from the likes of Space Invaders and Galaga. But with Time Pilot, literally each stage is like a different period in time. So you go from like biplanes in the World War One era to Spitfires in World War Two. Um, there's helicopters from the Vietnam era. Then you go to a stage where there are jets just like yours. And then the final stage takes place in 2001 where it's UFOs. And the UFOs move extraordinarily fast and they have these really fast shots. But that was the first time that I really felt like I could make a quarter just go a hell of a long way. And, you know, when you're eight years old and you don't have a lot of pocket money, that's a thing that you really glom onto. You're just like, ooh, this here, this is my jam. So Time Pilot became a drug, but I played it for one glorious afternoon and then you know, my my situation began to evolve at home where my mother's husband would go for a month or two at a time on the ship. And, you know, my mom would just be tending to the house along with my baby sister that had come along. And the other thing that was a really, really critical discovery in that time was going to school and seeing these kids with the Game & Watch units. Now, I was already keenly aware of Nintendo because of Donkey Kong. I was like, oh, those are the Donkey Kong guys. Like, you know, they make cool stuff. But then to see these handheld video games, you know, sure, they were on really primitive liquid crystal displays, like, you know, the digital watches of the time, but that was an unbelievable, mind-blowing thing to see. And it was at this time that I sort of began to become more aware of, you know, what is this place called Japan? Like, where does Nintendo hail from? And why do the things that they make not feel like anyone else's? Like, these were really big, important questions to me at that age that began to become the seed of things that I would wind up chasing, you know, for the rest of my life, really. Um, the only major downside with this situation was that in my own class on the island of Guam, I was one of three kids that came from the base that were also the children of American service people. Everyone else in the class were locals. And at the time, I didn't have a handle whatsoever on the tension that existed between the people living on the island that were natives and this giant occupation by the United States military, which has been a thing since World War II moving forward. Um, so needless to say, they kind of hated us. <laughs> and um, 
more often than not, my um, journey from the end of class to the door on the bus was more often than not accompanied by insults and getting shoved or nearly into fistfights. So that also became a really huge formative thing for me was sort of recognizing when you've got people that are in a situation that aren't of a dominant culture that are sort of feeling like fish out of water. Like my sense for that really has become a thing and it still continues to be a thing that I always recognize in groups. It's like, I always tend to have an eye out for anybody that's in on a thing that may just sort of be feeling wallflowered in the moment, you know, because that experience of suddenly being on the outside. I mean, literally my first day in that class, I walked into the class because I'd heard the bell. It's like, you know, school back home. And I stood by, you know, I had a little name tag that was sitting on my desk. And when I walked over to my desk, I sat down because some of the other students were sitting down. But then everybody rose up and they all began to sing the island anthem, which was in their native tongue of Chamorro, which no clue. Like I had had no sort of preparation or like, hey, you know, we begin our class every day, da 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 but we also, we have our own island anthem, so if you'd like to join us, like, teacher didn't do that whatsoever. It was just, oh, uh, like, I, I had no idea what we were doing, what we were singing. It was a giant curveball, but I would say still to this day, like, whenever I walk into a room, it's a thing that I'm deeply conscious of. It's like, okay, who else here? who might not feel like they should be here and maybe that's a person I should extend a hand to. So that whole time was a very strange period in my life. And, you know, going back to this game that I developed this extreme fetish for, which was time pilot, things began to really deteriorate around my house. And I sort of noticed that my mom and her husband, they weren't really talking anymore. And there was one odd Saturday where I woke up and I walked down in the living room and he was the only one around. And I was looking at just a day of boredom. And I thought, you know what? I've never done this before. I'm just going to ask him for a few bucks and to see if I can go to that rec center because, damn it, I want to play some time pilot. And the craziest thing of all was that in this moment where their relationship was falling apart, it was the one time he actually decided to be really nice to me. And he just said, sure, how much you need? And I sort of stammered. I remember I was like, uh, five bucks. He gave me five bucks, and I left for the recreation center. And that proceeded to be a magical day in which I played a ton of time pilot, but also played this other game, that soon would spawn my lifelong love of Sega, which was Zaxxon. And the thing that really drew me to Zaxxon, it was more on that Donkey Kong end of things where it was brutally difficult. And that was partially because of the sort of isometric perspective that it has. Like, it's really difficult to tell how high you're flying in the context of the perspective. 
And it has this weird little gauge on the side that sort of helps out with that. But the other thing that sort of drew me to it, when we initially moved to Guam, that was the first time that I had ever flown on a jetliner. And I just remember that deafening roar of the plane being a thing that I couldn't sleep that entire time. Like I was just wired. Like the idea that I was flying was just, kind of a mind-blowing thing you know to feel the plane lift off the ground to feel that you know your stomach kind of fall away um and the thing was zaxon had this sort of background roar when you were flying out in space that i found really really similar to that of the aircraft when we left for guam so i remember playing it and just thinking i can't wait to hear this again and know that i'll be going home and the crazy thing about that is that it wouldn't be very long after that that my mom and her husband's relationship would fall apart and myself, my mom, and my baby sister would wind up returning home to Tucson. So that's essentially where many of the seeds of my own love for this particular medium were sown. And this has been episode zero of Ruminations of a Six-Button Samurai. I hope you'll continue to follow along and maybe, you know, the next time you're firing up your favorite retro compilation, take a bit longer of a look at some of the games that you really, really love and think about some of the things that you might have experienced that continue to sort of affect you today. Do you want more and amazing and awesome content just like this? Great shows with fun hosts. Do you want to indulge in some great discussion and rumination on a variety of topics? Join us at ruminationsradionetwork.com, the newest home to a diverse cast of podcasters and masterminds.